You see on your, uh, your bulletin here, it says the 15th Sunday after Trinity. I don't believe this is correct because yesterday I was in Walmart and I saw Christmas trees coming down. So we're in Advent, whether you realize it or not. And so as a result of us being in Advent, that made me think about one of my favorite stories, a Christmas story that's been basically a part of my life ever since I could watch TV and even read a book, and that's um, A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. I couldn't help but think about Ebenezer Scrooge and this story in the context of our two readings from the New Testament and the Old Testament today, the Gospel especially. Ebenezer Scrooge has become a trope. He's become an archetype of hard-heartedness. To be a Scrooge is to be a hard-hearted person. In fact, the, 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 his origin of his name comes from uh, the word, the 17th century word scrouge, which means to squeeze or to press. Isn't that exactly what Scrooge did? He was like a lemon press on people, trying to squeeze every penny he could out of them. He thought primarily about himself. So Charles Dickens, <clears throat> when he wrote this, was influenced by his growing up. When he was 12 years old in 1824, he worked 10 hours a day in a rat-infested shoe polish factory, earning about six shillings a week. That's the equivalent of about $45 a week. It was all the money he had for his family. His mother, father, and other siblings, they were all in debtor's prison. He was the only income. And it was fine if you were in debtor's prison. You know, you, you just couldn't leave. You couldn't have a job. You couldn't leave until you, got, you paid off your debts. And, and then what would happen is if you still couldn't do that when you died they would actually recycle your body and sell it to the, the medical schools so they could cut you open. Even in your death, you had some value. That was the community, that was the experience of his growing up. I was told that even in his adulthood, whenever he passed a shoe polish factory, he would break into tears, remembering his time. When he wrote this story, Christmas was basically dead. Christmas didn't mean anything. It wasn't the big thing we think of today. But I want to bring you to this early part of the story where we see sort of Scrooge in his pure, unadulterated form. I'm going to pull from, from the text. So he's being met with a couple of men at his place of work, and they're, they're not poor men. They're, they're wealthy entrepreneurs, but they're looking, they're sort of policing, asking, or not they're politicking, going from door to door, trying to get some, some funds for the poor. And they start this dialogue. At this festive season of the year, Mr. Scrooge said one of the gentlemen, taking up a pen, it's more than usually desirable that we should make some slight provision for the poor and destitute who suffer greatly at the present time. Many thousands are in want of common necessities. Hundreds of thousands are in want of common comforts, sir. Are there no prisons? asked Scrooge. Plenty of prisons, said the gentleman, laying down the pen again. And the union workhouses? demanded Scrooge. Are they still in operation? 
They are still, said returned the gentleman. I wish I could say they were not. The treadmill and the poor law are in full vigor then, said Scrooge. Both very busy, sir. The treadmill was this inhuman piece of uh, incentive. It was like you see the, do- the, 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 the horses would push a grind mill, except it wasn't being pushed by horses. It was being pushed by human beings. It was said to be so painful that if you were ever on this treadmill, you would never want to ever go back. That's the incentive. Once you've done this, you never want to go back. So they're in full vigor then. Both very busy, sir. Oh, I was afraid from what you said at first that something had occurred to stop them in their useful course, said Scrooge. I'm very glad to hear it. Under the impression that they scarcely furnish Christian cheer of mind or body to the multitude, returned the gentleman, a few of us are endeavoring to raise a fund to buy the poor some meat and drink and a means of warmth. We chose this time because, of all others, when want is keenly felt and abundance rejoices, what shall I put you down for? Nothing, replied Scrooge. You wish to be anonymous. I wish to be left alone, said Scrooge. Since you ask of me what I wish, gentlemen, that is my answer. I don't make myself merry at Christmas, and I can't afford to make idle people merry. And I help to support the establishments I have mentioned. They cost enough, and those who are badly off must go there. Many can't go there, and many would rather die. And this is my favorite line. If they would rather die, said Scrooge, they had better do it and decrease the surplus population. This is the sort of hard-heartedness that Amos speaks to in our section. In Amos chapter 6, we get into the voice of a prophet who is upset, who's been given God's righteous indignation to speak to a people who are God's people. Well, let's talk a little bit about Amos. Amos was a 8th century, around 760 B.C. prophet. He didn't want to be a prophet. He didn't come from a line of prophets. This was not on his list of things to do. He was a farmer and kept an orchard, was a shepherd from the southern kingdom. This would have been in Judah. That was his, his home, was a little village called Tekoa. I don't suspect that Amos wanted to be a prophet. Could you imagine? He gets to work outside every day. He's in fellowship with creation. He's seeing the sun. He's seeing and feeling the wind. He's a part, an integral part of God's creative work, facilitating that work. And yet he's called out of that, not just to speak to his neighbors, which might be hard enough, He's actually called to go out of this place in southern Judah to the northern kingdom. He's called not to talk to his neighbors, but to his, basically, his enemies. So think about it. You're from northern Israel. You're, say, maybe the king or his priests. And this 
know-nothing, ill-educated country bumpkin says he's got a word from the Lord. Oh, I've heard that one before. How much do you want? Here's what Amos says. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure in the mountains of Samaria. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David, invent for themselves instruments of music. Who drink the wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile. And to exile they did go. But Amos first, just like God the Father, the loving husband, desired, yearned for his people to come back to him. If we could distill Amos into one verse, I think it would be Amos 5.4, where he says, Seek me and live. He just wanted the people of his covenant, the people of his promise, the people that he had wedded himself to, to love him, to want to be in relationship with him. And because they were not in right relationship, everything else was screwball in their lives. They had an unhealthy understanding of their relationship to the land. They had an unhealthy relationship of their understanding of their relationship to him. And they had an unhealthy relationship understanding their, their expression of love to their fellow man. Amos is not critical of wealth. He's critical of wealth before God. That's the prophet's cry. Come back to me. Return to me. I love you. Won't you come back to my embrace? All of the prophets, they have this similar reprise. Hosea, Isaiah, Jeremiah. Come back to me. I love you. Come back to me. We don't know about his death. The, the scriptures, the Bible's quiet about it. But in some other literature, there's talk that the, the king's priest, Amaziah, may have actually killed him himself. It's possible. It sort of fits. Not only is a prophet unwelcome in his hometown, I don't think a prophet's welcome in any town. In the reading from the Psalms, we have this beautiful picture in 146 of the way the world should be oriented. Isn't it lovely when we read this stuff? It's one of my favorite psalms. It speaks about a well-ordered, right-ordered world. Put not your trust in princes, Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, currently unaligned, you're not going to find your salvation in Washington. I promise you that. And you're not going to get it in Richmond either.
Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth. It is a right understanding of creation. We know what God has done. He has given us this beautiful garden, all of these things. It's through his hand that we have these things who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. He is a good and righteous, promise-keeping God who executes justice for the oppressed. He will not forget the poor. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bound down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. There's this cacophony of words. It's like this... It's like the the flow of the water at the beach, as it comes in, it just crashes in on the rocks. There's this impulse. It just gets more powerful, stronger and stronger. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. It's like, what else can we not do? That's where we're left. We're left praising the Lord. It's like, I didn't even have to say a word this morning. I feel like you guys heard the gospel and all of the music. And everything has a preamble to what I'm saying. It's like we could have stopped. And I could have just said amen. The right place for a man to be is on his knees praising God. Because in that act, he demonstrates submission to the Father. He demonstrates his proper orientation to the Father. And he has an honest assessment of who he is in this taxonomy, this hierarchy of life. The psalmist understands that. He calls us to that. So now we move to the the real heart of our message today, and that's in Luke. Luke 16. Jesus is having this conversation around the Pharisees. I'm not sure how much he's actually engaging them, but they're there. They're hovering around. They want to see what this guy is doing. What is he saying? How is he inciting the people? It's important for us to see earlier, prior to this parable of the rich man and Lazarus, he's talking about this dishonest manager, this shrewd manager, who basically, while the master's away, sort of shifts the books a little bit, kind of makes things better for some wealthy people so that they'll show kindness to him. I still don't really know what those parables mean. I think we're going to have to wrestle with them for a while. But one little pinprick of light or understanding I've got is that Maybe it's a way of demonstrating sort of a worldly repentance. He knows he's going to get booted out of his his job. He's just trying to cultivate friends, and he's doing that with money. So there's an act, if you will, of repentance in this shifting of the books. And then prior to our parable, 
the Pharisees, we see in verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. That's Jesus. And he said to them, this is Jesus again, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. So I'm going to talk a little bit later about that Jewish notion, that first century Jewish notion of the heart. So just hold that. But basically, God or Jesus is saying about them that I know you. You have no secrets. You are revealed to me. You are those who justify yourselves before men. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And then there's this comment about divorce and remarry, which I think talks about the health and right relationship of people. And then we move to our parable, the rich man and Lazarus. So of all the parables, this is the only parable in which we have one of the individuals named. All of Jesus' parables, this is the only one where there's a name. And the name is Lazarus. That's a derivation of the word Eleazar, the name Eleazar. And that means in Hebrew, the one God helps. So let's break this down. We know the story. Lazarus is poor, downtrodden. He sits literally at the gates. A gate, the gates are the place of judgment. He sits at the gates. He is incapable of helping himself. He has sores that the dogs lick. And he's just hoping for the scraps or crumbs that fall from the rich man's table. We hear that language in another of Jesus' parables. It's the Syrophoenician woman who, when she's having this conversation with Jesus, she says to him when she's begging for mercy, even the dogs get the crumbs from the table. Even the likes of me. The description of the rich man who doesn't have a name is one of someone who not just lived a grand life, but a sumptuous life. He just wasn't a little wealthy. He was like a lot wealthy. He always was dressed in purple and fine linen, the most expensive materials of that age. He, he feasted, according to the scripture, the word is sumptuous, every day. This is not someone, you would have liked to have been this guy's friend or neighbor. Hey, come on over. Having some more good food. You'd like this guy. But then there's this action, or maybe inaction. You never hear of this rich man even noticing Lazarus. It's just like he doesn't exist. But then... When they die, and Lazarus goes to the, the bosom of Abraham, basically he's on his path, if you will, to, to, to final judgment. The rich man is in Hades, 
Think of hell. Think of Gehenna, the burning fire. It's the place you don't want to be. It's where all the unclean things are. So what's really important is to think about some of the verbs and and what is being done. The rich man, even while he's in hell, in Hades, he has the presumption to say to Abraham, hey, that poor guy, Lazarus, can you send him down to give me some water, please? He doesn't say, hey, Abraham, could you please remove me from this place of torment? He still doesn't get it. He's still in the old system of understanding relationship. And he's like, the the guy who's like the servant guy, send the servant guy down to help me, okay? He does it again. He also says, hey, could you send that, that servant guy, Lazarus, again? Could you send him back and have him talk to my brothers? Because they'll listen to him, okay? He doesn't say, Abraham, you go. He doesn't say, send another prophet. He's like, no, send, send that guy, you know, the poor guy. He still doesn't get it. I think that one definition of sin is that actions that cultivate within us an unknowing of who we really are. What I'm trying to say is that sin... not only separates us from God, but separates us from who we truly are, who we're meant to be. The rich man, I believe, is so blinded that even in his torment, he still doesn't understand. He still doesn't get it. But what of Lazarus? Lazarus has his consummation. He has forgiveness. He has relationship. He has ultimately he has redemption. Jesus is talking to the hardness of hearts. The great sin in this parable is the sin of neglect. The Pharisees did not tend their hearts. The Pharisees did not tend the people. The Pharisees did not tend to their communities. They were shepherds without flocks. They were wolves to their sheep. He speaks to that act that lack of neglect, that, pardon me, that that neglect towards God the Father and to his right ways of understanding the world. It's funny, they cry out, or pardon me, the the rich man cries out, he said, send a prophet, send, send more, send more special signs and wonders, and then they'll get it, then they'll understand. Is that a religion, or is that just pure entertainment? I just want more signs and wonders. That's not faith. That's not this daily grind of trying to figure out who you are 
and what your relationship is with God, that's just like shock TV. What it doesn't show is a willingness to repent. What it doesn't show is a willingness to try to realign, reorient our affections. What it shows is hardness of heart. And this is the segue that brings us to that understanding, that Jewish notion of heart. The first century Jewish notion of a heart was... The, the word they use is leb, L-E-B. Excuse me. I don't know about you, but I get excited talking about this stuff. This is fun for me. I really enjoy getting... So I know that at the end of this sermon, I don't know if any of you all will get anything out of it, but I know at least one person gets something out of it, and that's me. Uh, so y'all can join me or not. But... The, the notion of the leb, it's this idea that the seat of our humanity, the seat of our passions, it's not the head, it's not the heart like we think of in the West. The head is this sort of rational thing, right? And the heart, that's the seat of our emotions. For the Jewish first century individual, when we talked about the heart, that would be this core internal essence of who you are. It's where the seat of thought, the seat of emotion, the seat of volition, will, and the seat of self-consciousness, those resided in your, in your guts, in your heart. Like I told Zoe this morning, I love you with my guts. And she said, that's not really appealing. <laughs> that's the kind of defining combined sensibility, holistic sense of self that the first century Jews had. They weren't, they didn't have to fight with the enlightenment. They didn't have to fight with all of that stuff where we've divided the heart and mind. For them, it was all there. Our core thoughts, truest compending, the truest combination of what makes us us. That's the heart. And when that is off, when that is not properly oriented, when that is not properly centered, when that is not focused on God, it's like a compass that's broken. You're using it to try to get to a place, but you can't get there because your directional system is broken. The gyroscope is, is not working. You're never going to get there. You're always going to be 3, 4, 10, 15 degrees off. And if you've ever done any um, navigating across open lands with a compass, it's hard enough when the compass works. They did not have a proper sense of their identity before God. 
we as followers of Christ are called to have a proper sense of ourselves before God. I was thinking this morning about how would I define what it is to be a Christian or a follower of Christ? And the definition that I came to is, one, it is right belief. Knowing who you are, who God is, what our place in his world is. The the fancy term for this is um, orthodoxy. Right acting or righteousness, right deeds. That's obedience and humility with grace. That's called orthopraxy. In community, worked out together. That's the church for the kingdom. This means we're not working for ourselves. It's his will and his spirit that we're seeking to forward, to advance. It's not the kingdom of Scott, as much as I'm allied with that kingdom. So right belief coupled with right action in community for the kingdom. That's how I define what a Christ follower is. So how then shall we live? Paul points us, gives us some ideas in this passage from 1 Timothy. And I have to give my props to Paul. There are some times when you read Paul, it's like he gets in this rapturous, almost ecstatic place of just, he just can't help himself. The words are so good. When I read this passage, I get a sense of seeing Paul just like lost in this relational understanding of who he is and who God is and just the way the world is and ought to be. And also you have to have a little bit more context than than the passage that we're given. So we're going up in 1 Timothy 6, starting in verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. Why is that? Because we're limited in our vision. Because we don't believe at some deep level that Jesus, that God will take care of us. We believe we've got to do it ourselves. And because we believe that, we've got to work really hard. And those people who get in our way to stop us from getting what we need to get are impediments. They're not working for the team. They're not working for Team Hansen. That's not what he says, though, is it? Okay, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love, that's key, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So money itself is not the problem. It's, our, it's what we do with it. It's our affection. It's the place that it holds in, this, in our seat of self. But as for you, this is where things are different. You're the you. But as for you, fellow believer, fellow sojourner, fellow pilgrim, 
O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good faith, fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no eye has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. You feel it? That's power. Can you imagine if you are so content and so right-minded as to who you are and where you stand before God that you can say these things with boldness and believe it? This is who we are. This is who God is. This is real. And if the seat of your emotions, your heart, does not have Christ as its object of obsession, then you're off. I love that. I love those words. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Because you know why? They're not rich because they're really smart or good. God's blessed them. Or maybe he's cursed them. To set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. There's a book called the Didache. There's a line from that. It's like a, it's an early manual from the early church about right living. And it talks about, there's one line, your hand should be sweating when it has some possession or good on it so that till it gives it away. We should be that anxious to share what we've received. Don't think I preach this from a position of... Um, uh, active um, work in this area. This is tough. This is a really hard message for me because um, the way that I think about the world, the way that I'm oriented, I'm very concerned about security, financial security. I'm very concerned about um, Are we going to make it to the next year? Are we going to be able to pay all the bills? Are we going to be able to... Am I going to be able to do the things I want to do? Buy the stuff I want to get? I read these words, and I have to prepare these passages, and I'm reminded of my own deep need for Jesus and my capacity to lie to myself about how good I am and to lie to others about that as well. We are deceitful beings. So be honest. Recognize who you are in front of God. Recognize that you're broken and at the same time you're still loved of Jesus. 
know that you're justified before him, but also know that you're not done. So, how do we do all this? What can we do? Um, I love Amos, and he, and he basically, I didn't get, this wasn't one of the verses that was preached on, but I just love it, and I think this is a great call for us all. We're called to live in such a way as we let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an overflowing stream. Isn't that a beautiful image? Justice roll down like the Shenandoah River just rolls, not down, but up, but it rolls up. We need justice to roll up and righteousness like an overflowing stream, like the waters when a, a flood comes and all this water comes out and it's just all this, these good acts of righteousness. We can do this because we're connected to the vine. As children of God, as believers of Christ, we're connected to the vine. We're connected to Christ. We're connected to each other. We're connected to our true selves. We can know who we are. And we have to know who we are in order to recognize these other connections. In the vineyard that's tended by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we're called to live into our true calling and true identity. Just as Ebenezer Scrooge did in the end of the story. So I gave you the meaning of his last name, Scrooge, press. But Ebenezer, Ebenezer means stone of help. In some of our hymns, there's the song, I'll raise my Ebenezer. It's this mound of stone that the people of Israel would, would build to remind themselves of God's faithful action, how God has been faithful to them and has provided for them. I love the scene in the movies and in the book when Ebenezer wakes up after the last visit and he's like, do I still have time? Oh, it's Christmas morning. I have time. And he's giddy. Do you remember the joy of your salvation? Do you remember that giddiness you may have felt? That's Scrooge. That's a picture of a reformed heart. And then that reformation brings about right action. He seeks to undo the things, the harm that he's done. And not only that, he seeks to do better. That's God's call for us. Let us pray and live into the words that are attributed to St. Francis. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there's hatred, let me sow love. Where there's injury, pardon. Where there's doubt, faith. Where there's despair, hope. Where there's darkness, light. Where there's sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen.